You're listening to the Celestial Citizen Podcast, and I'm your host, Britt Duffy Adkins. Celestial Citizen is a platform for promoting a more equitable and just vision of planetary settlement beyond Earth. This podcast seeks to provide an opportunity for conversation about how to be a better interplanetary citizen and responsible steward of Earth and the cosmos by engaging the global public, providing greater access to the space industry and amplifying a more diverse set of voices, progress in space can equate to progress on Earth. We who are bursting with stardust can become celestial citizens. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Ruvimbo Samanga. When we send astronauts out into space, they are envoys for all humankind. They are representing us and the activities they conduct on behalf of all humankind affect us and inspire us all. We'll discuss the field of space law and policy, the African space sector, and Ruvimbo's involvement with the Space Generation Advisory Council's fourth African Space Generation Workshop. So I believe that the space industry is quite a transformative industry but I believe a lot of work still has to be done in terms of representation as well. Not only of women, but I think generally of all minority communities in space. So be sure to stay tuned to this episode of the Celestial Citizen Podcast. My guest on the show, Ruvimbo Samanga, is a space law and policy analyst with particular specialization in the traditional and new space sectors in Africa. She serves as a research fellow at the Open Lunar Foundation, focusing her research on lunar settlement and development policy. Ruvimbo holds a master's degree in international trade and investment law from the University of Pretoria and currently represents Zimbabwe in the Space Generation Advisory Council and the Women in Aerospace Africa chapter. Ruvimbo has also been recognized by Space in Africa as one of the top 10 under 30 in the African space industry. And I'm thrilled to have you joining Celestial Citizen Podcast today. Thanks so much for being here, Ruvimbo. Hi, Britt. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So let's jump right in. How did you become interested in the space industry? And why did you decide to pursue a career in space law and policy? I love this question so much because it's such a tale of risk-taking and adventure. I never thought I'd have a career in the space industry, but it all sort of came about in a very miraculous and beautiful way. I was in my penultimate year of my law degree, and I wasn't quite sure which direction I wanted my career to take. But I've always been someone to try everything out and sort of put down my checklist and figure out if I liked something or not. And um, I came across this interesting law competition for students called the Manfred Lack Space Law Mood Competition. And the topic was space law. And of course, I thought, wow, this is crazy. But again, it wasn't all that crazy because I have had an innate interest in outer space. I just never imagined I would work along those lines in a field. So I took part in the competition. We didn't do so well the first year. And I seem to think that it was my fault because I got stage fright 
in the finals of the competition, but that didn't dampen my spirit. I was so motivated to continue that I coached the next year's team. And not only did we progress to the finals, but we became the first team from Africa to win the competition in its 26-year history. And I mean, from there, all of the doors were wide open and I was so excited to see the prospects. And it just made sense being a lawyer that I would investigate the space law track. And we had a lot of sleepless nights in that competition, but not once did it ever feel like work. And I just knew then that I'd found a good fit. But over and above that, I enjoy the space law industry because it provides me with something engaging and interesting to do. And you always learn something new each and every single day. And I think it's a very impactful field as well. And certainly one that's growing rapidly as well right now, too. But kudos to you for, you know, overcoming your stage fright. It sounds like quite the personal development journey as well. And certainly completely agree. I think, you know, you've found the right thing to do in life if it doesn't feel like work. Clear that you're very passionate about this field, which is great. So you grew up in the city of Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. Can you talk a little bit about the space sector in Zimbabwe specifically and how those national aspirations also fit into a more unified vision of the African space sector more broadly? So our space agency was established in 2018. So we're a relatively new or emerging space nation. And it's safe to say that five years ago, even three years ago, when I first began my career in the space industry, the typical Zimbabwean was very skeptical about what outer space had to offer our country, especially. But I think over time and with the establishment of the agency and, of course, pioneers like myself who are advocating for space awareness and space development, that perception has changed and that knowledge is spreading And I think one aspect that our space agency and our government has managed to capitalize on is a well-educated population, a population that is skilled. I'm conducting a study right now on the integration of GIS, and I was absolutely taken aback by the number of GIS specialists we have in the country. So the knowledge base is there, but the infrastructure and maybe the supporting policy environment is lacking, and that's what we're hoping to develop. But I think then the broader vision of the African space sector then is to capitalize on these strengths and weaknesses. We are on the way to establishing the African Space Agency, which will be hosted in Egypt and will be established by the year 2022. And the whole premise is to conglomerate all of the different efforts and resources of all the 54 African countries And I believe Zimbabwe will have its role to play as well in sharing not only skills, but also receiving the necessary resources, infrastructure and technology as well. And together, if we share the risks and the costs, I think we'll have a unified Africa for space innovation. It's so interesting, too, that you bring up the fact that the general public was initially like a little bit skeptical when having conversations with people who might not understand why they should care about space. What do you say to them and how do you demonstrate to them that the industry currently and potentially in the future has a real impact on their lives? I'll use a little anecdote. So we happen to be in the ISS pathway quite frequently every two or three weeks. And I've taken to um, spotting it out every single time it passes by. And I've often stopped to wonder, what would the ordinary citizen think this was if they saw it flying by? Because it does really just look like a really fast moving plane. Mm -hmm. And when you mention space in Zimbabwe, people automatically assume, you know, spaceship, 
they don't actually make the correlation between space and, say, satellite technology. And I think that's where the knowledge gap is, because then if you notice just how integrated satellite technology is in our daily lives, you can really then begin to appreciate how impactful outer space is. So how I usually approach the topic when people ask me, well, what are you doing? What, how beneficial is this for Africa? Is I mentioned, well, if you want to withdraw money from an ATM, if you want to watch TV or surf the internet or even make a phone call, you're using some form of satellite infrastructure. And if you want to get a bit more advanced than that and look at sustainable development as an indicator, I mentioned the novel uses of satellite technology in farming, you know, for precision agriculture. I mentioned as well how it can help some of the current woes we face here in Zimbabwe, like water management and disaster management, especially. I touch on, you know, sometimes even sensitive topics like natural disasters. We had a very terrible cyclone that happened in 2019, which if we had that satellite infrastructure, we could have mitigated so I use practical and real use case examples to demonstrate that this is the link between how we live day to day and this infrastructure that is changing our lives. And then I begin to see a shift in perspective and people begin to really appreciate how this technology will help us. And I think even more so as we move to this digital economy, this socially distanced global setup, it's more important now that we are connected. It's more important as well that we navigate these digital technologies and we integrate into the new way of living. And that makes satellite technology even more important. But over and above that, there's space exploration to consider as well. And for them to understand that as much as we may not be able to actively participate in that advancement quite yet, we still have a voice in that narrative. In your opinion, how could the U.S. and NASA do a better job of supporting the spacefaring ambitions of countries like Zimbabwe, you know, have fairly young space agencies at this time? I think the key word today is democratization. And we know that space has long been a domain for, you know, the large multinationals and for the powerful nations. But more and more, we're seeing private actors, emerging nations and developing countries taking part and their respective ecosystems taking part as well. And at the core of every emerging nation's journey into outer space is development finance. So I would really love to see a scenario where finance is rechanneled towards the countries that need it most. I also believe that there needs to be sharing of knowledge and technology, because if you consider that the moon landing happened about 70 years ago, that technology that landed the first man on the moon still hasn't reached developing countries, despite the fact that in the Outer Space Treaty, it declares outer space as the province of all humankind, and that exploration and use of outer space should be done in the interests of all humankind, especially developing nations. So I think then the sharing of that knowledge, the sharing of that information needs to be a priority. And I think over and above that, there needs to be large-scale policy reform with the interests of these nations at heart. There needs to be a cooperative governance mechanism that oversees all of this. And I think just some model of collective leadership that makes outer space a real multi-stakeholder initiative, because that's what it is. We're dealing with the interests of a diverse demographic of individuals. 
Couldn't agree more. I think you made an excellent point there, just given how long it's been since the Apollo missions and the fact that, to your point, again, that technology has not trickled down to other more emerging space agencies is frankly kind of shocking. It seems to me that if we could pursue, you know, efforts in a more collective manner, you get all those outside perspectives and all of these different countries have so much to offer. And so if we all work together, it feels like we could have been much further along at this point than frankly we we are. So I think that those are really good points. And I think it's something that certainly the U.S. could do a much better job of and other space agencies as well in terms of making sure that there is that knowledge sharing. Space is such a delicate um, space. And it's sort of like, why would you not want to help all the new players and people that are trying to get there and to also have space exploration missions? Why wouldn't you want to help them so that they are able to find success earlier and faster than we were able to? So I think those are all great points. And I'm curious also what your thoughts are on the civil and commercial lunar missions that are poised to occur over the next decade. And I guess in particular, those that aim to utilize space resources. Do you worry that emerging space agencies will not have the same opportunity and access to those lunar resources in the future? Indeed, I do. This is a very big research point for me at the moment at the Open Lunar Foundation, which is how do we manage the different stakeholder interests in outer space? And how do we create a lunar governance framework that speaks to not only the interests, but also the cultural aspirations that we attach to the moon? And I've sort of taken as well an anthropological viewpoint to this research because the moon is a cultural heritage for a lot of people. And we need to consider what does mining on the moon mean to different people who sometimes associate the moon even to the point as a deity. And one of the concepts that I'm currently researching is how we can attain the social license to operate which is mining or extractive industry principle that I've extrapolated from all mining systems. But for this particular research, I'm looking at the African extractive industry for lessons on how we can better manage any expedition to the moon that involves resource utilization. And if we're talking about a social license to operate, this is derived from the community. So who's the community in outer space sense? It's the whole of humankind. So we need to essentially incorporate all of the different interests into any future lunar governance. And that means there needs to be benefits sharing. So again, like you correctly said, these benefits need to trickle down to even the least developed country. But how do we ensure that? And how do we compete with the profit-oriented interests of many of the private companies that are aiming to explore the lunar terrain? So... What I've been working on then is to come up with a sort of economic governance model that's more or less modeled off of the geostationary orbit and how satellites are managed there. And as we know, satellite or spectrum orbital slots are pre-allocated in the geostationary orbit, which ensures that even a nation which doesn't have the technical capacity to utilize that resource yet can still have its slot reserved. And again, that has been translated into a concept known as planetary parks which ensures that should there ever come a time where states are interested or by necessity have to use resources on the moon, each state will have a pre-allocated portion of the moon to utilize to a certain extent. Again, I am not for the full commercialization of lunar resources for terrestrial 
gain, which means I don't believe in mining to sell in terrestrial markets, but I do believe that any settlement on the moon would require some kind of resource utilization to sustain the habitat. And with that, I am fully in agreement that there needs to be a sustainable way of managing it. To that end, I once again believe that it's more urgent that we bring emerging countries into the fold because they risk losing out again on this precious resource and this precious opportunity to engage in a very life-changing global development. I think that those are some really interesting points because in that same vein, personally, I also share the opinion that resources that we find in space should be used for space. And I think you're starting to see the narrative shift on that a bit. You know, initially, I think there was a lot of talk about extracting resources in space and bringing them back to Earth. And I just, I think that quite frankly, is just really not a very sound idea for a whole host of reasons. But particularly when you start to get into not only the economics, but also the ethics of using space resources. And so I think that those are all really important things to remember. I think you're absolutely right that we do need to figure out ways of how to integrate all of the collective global actors into this process. And that's a big part of celestial citizen and a big part of space urban planning as a discipline is this idea that we can start to engage the public in meaningful ways such that people feel heard and they feel like their visions and what they need and want out of a future in space is being incorporated into whatever, you know, that future global plan is. I think your idea about allocating particular portions of the moon is really interesting in terms of, you know, being more ethical in the way that we think about resource use and extraction. And there's a lot of people that would also say, oh, well, you know, there's plenty of resources to be had on the moon. And perhaps that's true, but there are certainly some resources that will be ultimately easier for us to access. So some of this is also not necessarily a question of just, are there still resources left? but also how easily accessible are those resources? Have you thought at all about how to balance that aspect of it, of sort of like which of the most preferential landing sites, how would you balance the sharing of resources around those areas? So indeed, there are certain areas that are more advantageous than others. For example, the poles are the current focuses right now because it was recently discovered that you could find ice or water particles in those regions. And again, water is not only important for sustaining life, it's also important for oxygen. And you can also split the oxygen and the hydrogen to create rocket fuel. So these are some of the areas of interest as well as craters where you will find in the shadows as well, ice and water particles have a chance to percolate as well. So there are certain designated zones where it would be more ideal to land and then you have to consider what's the kind of infrastructure you would have there. And again, that's an additional factor. You also have to consider what kind of machinery will you use to extract all of these, the different methods that are currently being tabled as to how these resources will be extracted. I'll use the water example. The water doesn't occur in the form as we know it. It's not liquid water. It's really just particles that would form water if they were combined. So you need to find a way to not only extract those particles, but bring them together in a way that they can form water. So the theories that have been used so far include a microwave theory, where they basically vaporize the soil. And from that, they get a mist, which then percolates in a cold chamber. And from there, you can get little drops of water as well. And this is not cheap infrastructure. This is quite expensive innovation that a 
company or a state necessarily has to invest a very large capital commitment into. So balancing your costs against your revenue generation so you can get a profit means that you will have to engage in some additional activities to sort of break even. And I guess that's where the concern is because no longer will it just be a sustenance model. It will be a profit generating model because space at the end of the day is still a business. And there's no company or state in the world, I think, which would want to incur such a loss. And I suppose that's where we'll have to put much of our attention to then, which is how do we make sure it's still economically viable? And I think the only way we can do this is if we have a central governing authority that operates along the same model as the WHO. And as the WHO stands, it is really supported by the voluntary cash contributions of all of the members involved. And from this, they can then use some of this money to incentivize good behavior and good development projects all over the world. And I think if we had something like that for lunar governance, it would take the pressure off of the investors, reduce that risk of return and allow them to purely just engage in activities with the security that they will receive returns and they have support either of the governing authority or their governments as well. And I think that's the only viable solution I would look towards. Do you envision that sort of system also helping to, you know, mitigate orbital debris? You know, obviously that's becoming an ever more increasing challenge. And I think a lot of people actually who aren't familiar with the space industry probably aren't aware of just how crowded our orbiting environment is. But do you think that that's also a strategy for helping to mitigate orbital debris? Absolutely. I think there does need to be an open data architecture and a global international framework for space traffic management in general. And I think I really admire the steps taken by the United States in this regard, because firstly, they are the only country in the world with a dedicated space traffic management policy. And as well, they are, again, one of the only countries, in fact, the only country with a dedicated cybersecurity policy for space systems, dedicated solely for space systems. And this is all with greater intent to foster safety and security in outer space, because if we don't have a sustainable terrain, we're only increasing the chances for orbital debris to accumulate. And we have not even addressed legacy debris as of yet before we even continue with, you know, future debris. So I think there needs to be more active debris removal mechanisms discussed, integrated into space systems and further integrated into policy and mandate that states have debris at the fore of their satellite construction and design and mm -hmm. mandatory deorbiting, perhaps, or even creating ingenious mechanisms like the European Space Agency have created like a net or these magnets, which like capture space debris and bring it back to Earth. Yeah. We need all of these. I've seen yeah. that. Yeah, it's cool. And I think that that's a great point, too, is that we have sort of what we regard as orbital debris, though, could also potentially, I think there's these exciting opportunities to capture, you know, recycle and reuse materials in space as well to sort of learn how to be more sustainable in the way that we do business in space. Sustainability is indeed a very big factor, I think. We aren't thinking about the long term. You know, kind of sidestepping a bit, but we've obviously been talking a lot about lunar policy. And you're also a research fellow of the Open Lunar Foundation. How did you get involved with this foundation? And can you talk a little bit about what you're currently working on there? 
Indeed, it's another adventure story. But again, <laughs> I've never really quite grown out of the whole competition thing and soul searching thing. So once again, at the beginning of 2020, I found out about a very interesting competition and I found it as an opportunity to investigate some policy points that I had been meaning to work on. So along with a few other ladies in the industry, we formed a cute little team and took part in the Arizona State University Space Governance Competition, which again was a competition to garner policy proposals on certain aspects such as space debris. We chose mega satellite constellations in the lower Earth orbit. And unfortunately, we didn't win. <laughs> but <laughs> luckily enough, in the final round of the competition, I was the speaker and the chief of staff of the Open Lunar Foundation happened to be listening in. And she was quite impressed by the proposals that I gave. And I was encouraged to apply for a research fellowship with them. And from there, the rest was history. So again, it was wow. just a testament to what taking a risk and taking initiative could, you know, what doors that could open up for me. I've been with them ever since, and it's been such an awesome place for me to grow because as a Zimbabwean, there are not many avenues for me to discuss lunar settlement and development policy. And over and above mm -hmm. that, being a part of that foundation also gave me a much needed global perspective to outer space. And even more so, I just got an opportunity to gain some really cool friends and develop my network. It's a wonderful environment to be in. We also have a very niche session that we call the Moon Dialogues which is a conversation about the moon that we host every full moon, interestingly enough. And I was privileged to host the second last session, which in line with what we're discussing today was looking at equitable and inclusive access to space. And we discussed developing country perspectives and needs to accessing space. And I was really excited to moderate that. So it's a healthy space, very communicative space. I've grown a lot from being there and I definitely would encourage anyone to apply for the research fellowship as well. Sounds like the Open Lunar Foundation is really doing some great work and certainly an impressive group of research fellows as well. And the Moon Dialogues too. I mean, I encourage people to definitely join in on that as well. Really interesting discussions. I've uh, joined a few of those as well. So yeah, I think that those are all great opportunities for people who are interested in, you know, getting more involved, getting to talk with people that represent sort of a broad swath of the global population. And so I think it's interesting for those perspectives as well. You're also part of the organizing leadership for the Space Generation Advisory Council's fourth African Space Generation Workshop, which will be held in Accra, Ghana on February 25th through the 26th. And the event's core theme is a united Africa for space innovation, a step towards our common future. Can you share what this event is all about and why it is so important to have regional conversations about collective space futures? Indeed. So I'm a part of the Space Generation Advisory Council, and the whole mandate of that organization is to raise awareness on the benefits of space. And each region will undertake certain activities to continue this mandate. And the fourth African Space Generation Workshop is one of those activities. I would say it is probably the premier event on our calendar as the SGAC Africa. And this is, of course, its fourth year. I was privileged enough to also attend the third Africa Space Generation Workshop. And I found it to be such an eye-opening and enlightening experience to the extent that it really brings together the pioneers, the who's who of youth in the African space industry. And it's such 
a big opportunity to share ideas and to collaborate and to also discuss the future of Africa. I think it's important that we have these regional gatherings because firstly, regional collaboration for Africa means a lot in terms of us gaining access to outer space. But I think this year, especially the event, and I don't even know how it worked this way, but it worked perfectly. It coincides with the coming into effect of the Africa Free Trade Continental Agreement. And this is a trading block probably the largest single market trading block in the world at this point, which brings together all of Africa to reduce trade barriers and facilitate the free movement of goods and services. And again, I envision that space policy and also just space development in general will be an avenue for us to share resources, to share goods, to share services, and to integrate. So the secretariat for this agreement is actually based in Accra, Ghana. <laughs> and it's going to be quite an interesting event to have in collaboration with them because I believe that the space industry will play a very big role in our regional collaboration. So I think having these kinds of events allows us to really make the most of what's unique to Africa and make the most of what our unique resources and talents are and bring them together in a way that truly benefits us and contextualizes space for us. And do you think that as we move towards thinking of ourselves as one humanity here on Earth, that's not to say that we lose any of our individual cultures or identities, because I think that's really critical, right? I think that's really critical that as we move into space, we carry those traditions, we carry those cultures forward. It's important to celebrate our differences but at the same time work collectively too. Right now, I think Africa is a real thought leader on this topic of sort of thinking about things as a regional workshops and regional efforts to sort of, again, you know, as you said, to unite Africa for space innovation. And I think that other regions could also benefit from that approach as well. I mean, we see it also with the European Space Agency, obviously they're moving towards a more regional approach versus just specifically looking at national space agencies. Do you think that that natural next step is moving away from having a multitude of different national space programs and instead moving towards a more regional program? And then eventually from the regional program, then, you know, over time will eventually just sort of converge on one Earth space program. Do you think that that's possible in the future? I do think it's possible, maybe not in the short term, maybe not even the, in the long term, a couple of years, decades probably from now. But I think the world is slowly shifting towards that. Maybe not our generation, probably the next or one after that. But I'm really, I really appreciate that you bring up thought leadership that we have in Africa, because that is really how our humanness is expressed, which is collectivity. And there's a principle that we have here in Africa, and the term I'm going to use is more specific to Southern Africa, but you find it replicated in all traditions. It's called Ubuntu. In its premise, it means that I am because we are. So you cannot exist without your community. And I feel or I wish that this was an ideology we would adopt, you know, for all nations. And if we were to eventually constitute this broad Earth program, because at the end of the day, when we send astronauts out into space, they are envoys for all humankind. They are representing us and the activities they conduct on behalf of all humankind affect us and inspire us all. And there's one phenomenon that I, who knows, maybe I will experience this one day as an astronaut, but 
All astronauts have remarked on this overview effect where when they first take a look back at the Earth and they see this giant blue ball and realize just that we are all one people on this singular body floating through space. You don't see any borders, you don't see nationalities, you don't see identities, and that doesn't mean that they don't exist or they don't matter, but that in the grand scheme of things, we are all sharing a heritage. And I believe that we need to be more focused on that and hopefully work towards that Earth Space program where we don't see space as a competitive ground as it's always been, but as a collaborative ground that will undoubtedly yield benefits for all of us in turn. And I think your mention of the overview effect is so important because this phenomenon that people talk about, it really could, I think, just completely transform our society. The more people that get to experience it and get to, you know, in turn, share those perspectives with other members of their community here on Earth would be so critical. And so I think that that's a really important thing to bring up. Now, going back to the workshop, where can people go to learn more about this event and how can they donate to the workshop? Great. So we have a website on the Space Generation Advisory Council page. We have a little sub page called the Fourth Africa Space Generation Workshop, where you'll find not only the program details, but also what are some of the issues we'll be discussing. And again, opportunities for you to fund. We have a GoFundMe going and we also have a couple of sponsorship packages which range from silver to gold to bronze as well. And depending on your selection, you will also have the opportunity to advertise at our events and also just form a broader part of our network and collaborate with us in future and just to keep this opportunity going for us from year to year. So I would really advise you to just check out our page and also to follow our personal pages as well. We're continuously sharing updates, not only about the event, but also about general developments in the African space industry. And we are always welcome to collaborators and sponsors who want to push everything from space education in Africa to policy innovation to entrepreneurship, which is also quite big. So again, we would really love any kind of support. I strongly encourage, you know, all the listeners of this podcast to donate whatever you can to the workshop. Definitely go check out the GoFundMe page. Again, these donations also go directly, if I'm not mistaken, to paying for and allowing the different delegates to travel in for this workshop and to participate. So it is directly providing people with the opportunity to actively participate it's leading to increased dialogue, which I think is just so important. These are young professionals, they're students, people with all different kinds of impressive backgrounds. So whatever you can donate goes directly towards helping those people come together, share their ideas, and just leads to greater innovation too as well. And I mean, I was a beneficiary of these donations in the last year as well. So I speak from personal experience when I say that it is super helpful it was an opportunity that was life-changing. It opened a lot of doors for me, and I wouldn't have been able to profit from that if it weren't for the good graces of individuals like yourself as well, Britt, who really have a passion and a spirit to support these wonderful, wonderful initiatives. So I also wanted to talk a little bit about your startup, Agrispace. Can you explain what does Agrispace do exactly, and how might it transform the agricultural industry? So AgriSpace is a geospatial startup that uses data and technology to 
basically boost farming production in Zimbabwe. So it's a precision farming startup. And what we hope to create is an ecosystem of farmers who are tech savvy, who can manipulate geospatial data, but who can also share knowledge and skills because people often assume that farming is as simple as digging a hole, planting a seed, watering it, and it will grow. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. And even more so when you're in a region like Zimbabwe, which not only is prone to economic instability, but also is in the middle of a very drastic drought and irregular rainfall. So there are some sustainability or sustainable farming methods that farmers can definitely share amongst themselves. But at the core of the startup is to use satellite data to basically let farmers know what they can plant, how they can plant, where they can plant, when they can plant. And it's a full-scale solution because it targets everything from your soil fertility and monitoring to your plant fertility and monitoring to, of course, importantly as well, your weather forecasting. And this allows farmers to make important decisions regarding their resources, because again, if you know when it's going to rain, if you know what your plant health is, you can better manage nutrients, water and fertilizer, all of the things that you need to use sustainably and you need to use in good measure because crops are quite sensitive. And that not only improves your yield, but having this data also quantifies your yield. So then you can also approach the financial institutions and get the requisite credit finance or loans with the security that you will get, you know, such X amount of return. And this helps farmers again because they need that development finance. So it's a full-scale solution. Not only does it target the farming production, it also targets supply chain management, it targets investment, and it also targets policy because we hope from this we can come up with an agricultural policy that incorporates technology, which is not the case as it stands. And it's also a learning platform which uses digital innovation because all of this will be available on our bespoke application that is easily accessible to farmers and allows them not only to gather information, but to share information and knowledge. It's a full-scale community development project. That sounds very exciting. And I think it's a great example of sort of connecting space technology with improving quality of life here on Earth and leading to, you know, things like greater food security and, as you said, you know, better crop yield and management. What are the next steps for Agrispace? You know, what what do the next five years look like? Oh, lovely. So we're looking at our funding at the moment. So we have our proof of concept going and we've done our pilot study and the community of farmers are also excited to take part. But now I'd really love to scale up the project. And for the next few months, at least, I'm working quite hard on securing the requisite financing that we need to at least bring about the first few initial steps of the solution And for me, that would definitely be the app development because this will be the platform that we'll use to disseminate all of this information. Because again, with the current restrictions and the pandemic, it's become even more important that businesses adapt. So I think it was quite opportune that we were originally a digital business in any case. So we want to maintain that model. And I think it's a priority for us. And again, it's all with the greater aim of sustaining the population of promoting food security, like you correctly said. And this is a very grave challenge in Zimbabwe where at least half of the population is on the brink of starvation. That's about 8 million people who are currently food insecure. And 
this is not going to change anytime soon unless we have a large scale innovation, which I think only technology can bring about. So right now, the technology upgrade is our biggest focus. And Rubimbo, I mean, you are obviously super active in the space industry and you have just an impressive background, so many different projects and accolades and things like that. It's really inspiring. On a personal level, in getting where you have gotten to today, what challenges have you faced as a young woman working in the space sector, both within Africa, but also on the international stage as well? I'm going to take you back to my little competition story again. I think my challenges began even then. When I was a student taking part in those competitions, it was so difficult to acquire the resources that I needed. And I mean this in terms of like the knowledge. Just preparing for the competition was hectic enough because our library had enough resources, but not nearly to the extent that any of our competitors would have. And if you consider that some of the most important journals and resources are usually paid, again, that puts an additional barrier because Well, I wouldn't want to speak for all of Africa when I say that generally the majority of the population doesn't have that kind of disposable income to spend on books and learning resources. So this was a barrier and sometimes is a barrier again because these space books do not come cheap, unfortunately. Another challenge I faced early on was finding opportunities in Africa. I believe when I first began, the concept of a space lawyer didn't really exist. And to be honest, I don't think many people took it seriously because space, I think, always has been a very technical field. But now that there are more stakeholders, individuals and states and companies are realizing the importance of having some kind of strategy to navigate all of that. So in the beginning, I really did struggle to carve a niche and I figured maybe my role would always be a researcher. I sort of resigned myself to that fact. But some opportunities are opening and I'm really excited to see that roles for space lawyers are developing, even though slowly. And I think on the broader scale, when you come from Africa, there's always the assumption that everything here is theoretical simply because there's a lack of infrastructure and a lack of advancement of technology. And we're dealing with what individuals refer to as third world problems. So there's always some skepticism on whether as an African you really have anything to contribute to the conversation. And I suppose when I was first starting out, especially on the more professional front and even more so with my startup, it's very hard to convince international investors that this is really happening in Africa, given the myriad challenges that we face here. And I would be lying if I said I don't feel the pressure every time I'm on a panel to represent my continent because there are stereotypes that people have, their conscious biases and unconscious biases that people will hold when they see me on a panel. So... It can be quite difficult, but I've learned to hold my space and I've learned to also just trust that my experiences are valid and my contributions are valid. And I've come to enjoy shifting the narrative, even though sometimes it does present itself as a barrier sometimes to my participation. But over the whole, I think as a woman, being in a male-dominated industry as well, It's something that you unfortunately learn to live with. You learn to sort of just, you know, look at a panel and question why there aren't enough women. You look at organizations and wonder the same thing and you push and you strive and you make the changes that you can and you uplift the other ladies in your life that you know and you strive to work against that. I am pleased to know that there are a number of initiatives that work to support this. So I believe that the space industry is quite a transformative industry. 
but I believe a lot of work still has to be done in terms of representation as well, not only of women, but I think generally of all minority communities in space. Absolutely. I think those are just really important things to remember and think about. I can't imagine, you know, as you point out, yeah, you know, the burden also of feeling like every time you're on a panel having to represent the whole of Africa. I mean, that's just a very heavy responsibility to feel day in and day out. Hopefully this conversation, you know, to to everybody listening out there will also serve as a great reminder of like, there is so much opportunity, you know, you point out, I mean, agrispace is obviously one example, but there is a ton amount of entrepreneurial activity happening in the space sector across all of Africa. It's hopefully a great call to people who, if they haven't already spent some time looking into what is going on within the African space sector, hopefully now they will reach reach out and start to learn more because there's a huge amount of opportunity for collaboration, investment. And again, I think everybody sort of needs to also remember that ultimately the U.S. is perhaps just in the position that it's in because, you know, we got this massive head start with the Apollo missions. And I think that had we not had that, had there not been the same geopolitical motivations at the time, we would also be perhaps in a more nascent stage of our space industry. So I think, you know, it's um, a great opportunity where we can start to realize that there are those opportunities to work together and You know, certainly I can also relate to the points you bring up about being a woman in a very male-dominated industry. It is sometimes difficult to, you know, I, I love the phrase you use, to hold your own space and to remember that, you know, what you bring to the table is very valid and all of these different perspectives matter so much. So I think those are all really important things for people to remember here going forward. So pivoting a bit, Celestial Citizen is all about the idea that humans can become not only better stewards of Earth, but also better interplanetary citizens. A lot of the topics we've discussed here today, I think, fit into that theme. So in your opinion, what is one important way in which people can work toward becoming better celestial citizens today? I will give a very practical suggestion. I think there are a number of think tanks around the world, and I believe Celestial Citizen is one of them, Open Luna as well. I want to dare everyone listening to the podcast to join a think tank and have an active say in what's happening in outer space. I think that's the best way you can become a better interplanetary citizen by contributing to good governance, by contributing to development and by making your voice heard, especially if you are from minority groups, from developing countries, from emerging nations. Give your say to the space community of nations and let's make space a truly multi-stakeholder initiative. That would be my advice. Don't be yeah, gr- the great advice <laughs> that doesn't, you know, have a say in what happens. It's as good as like not voting or something. <laughs> no, I think that's great advice. And of course, you know, you bring up Open Lunar Foundation and certainly Celestial Citizen as well. Celestial Citizen is all about public feedback and input So, you know, definitely please reach out, please get involved, you can find more information about that on the website. But yeah, I think the more that we can have these really dynamic conversations with people from different backgrounds, the better off we will be for sure. So when you think of humans living and working in space and say, you know, whatever you think the timetable is for that, you know, whether it's 30 years, 50 years, 100 years out, what does that future look like to you? I don't know if I've quite visualized that far, but when I think about it, it seems very, there's there's a lot of room for development, I think. It seems like something that is full of potential, but again, hasn't really been fully conceptualized to the extent that I 
would vouch for it at this present moment, I think. I think there's still a lot of research that we can do in terms of making sure it's a safe and sustainable model. And there are, of course, a lot of pioneers who are contributing to this, like Elon Musk, whom has made some impressive strides so far. But just as we have the satellite industry, which is only now just reaching its maturity, I think it will also take us some time to reach the full maturity in extraplanetary habitation for the public to develop confidence. I think it's because we only deal with more challenges the farther we go out into outer space. I mean, if it's not debris, it's radiation. If it's not radiation, it's the vacuum. And if it's not the vacuum, it's the resources and how we get the resources and just how expensive it is to get like everything up there. But yeah, I you see have to have a lot of persistence to want to live in space. <laughs> I think so. I think it's going to be a very expensive endeavor. I do know there are a couple of individuals who wouldn't mind a one-way ticket there. So I would really envision it to be a one-way trip as well. And I see it being a very exciting but isolated experience in the beginning. But mm -hmm. as you know, future lunar, Martian, and extraplanetary colonies develop... I think it can become a thriving ecosystem, which like any new settlement will develop and grow and will sustain itself eventually. Okay, so for this last part, we're going to try something a little different. This is just a lightning round of quick questions. So just go with whatever pops into your head first and just give a brief explanation of why. Okay. Are you ready? Good to go. Okay. Are you more excited about when humans return to the moon or land on Mars for the first time? I'm more excited about returning to the moon because I believe that we'll be able to, I suppose, have a better view and better experience of it this time around with better technology and just better access for everyone to be a part. It's like a rebirth again. We get to yeah. be a part of oh, it I if like we that. missed it the first time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I really like that. That's a great way of thinking about it. Um, okay. So what is the biggest misconception about the space industry? I think the biggest misconception is that it's all about sending rockets to Mars. I think that's the predominant thinking, especially in Africa, at least. The space industry is really anything that's launched past, you know, the atmosphere. And that includes mm -hmm. satellites, which are really impactful for us all. Okay, advice you would give to a younger version of yourself? Don't worry, you've, you've got it all down. You're going to be just <laughs> fine. <laughs> Love it. All right, the last book that you read. I'm reading uh, a book actually called Voices of Zimbabwe. It's a historical overview of just the journey of the creation of the nation and everything that sort of happened from pre-independence to post-independence. And I think now, especially that I'm spending a lot of time back home and I'm doing a lot of work that's impactful for the nation, I really felt it was important to reconnect with the nation's history and learn things that I had never actually really considered before. So I'm a fan of those kind of historical outlooks. Yeah. Voices of Zimbabwe. That out. That sounds really good. Quite an interesting book. Okay. A place that you would most like to travel to after this COVID-19 pandemic is over. I would most like to travel to, oh man, I would love to go back to Outback, Austria. Mm. Yeah. That's uh, a city, a small little village town, actually, I visited sometime in 2019. And it's very quiet, it's serene, it's in the mountains, and it's just a good place to go and think. I think we could all use a reflective space after all we've been through. <laughs> that is for sure. That is for sure. Okay, and last one, what would you name the first city on the moon? Sirius. I'd call oh. it Sirius because I'm very much into stars, and Sirius is the brightest star in the night sky. 
I think it's a symbol of hope. I think it's a symbol of beauty and of great things. So every capital city deserves to be great, right? <laughs> oh, very interesting. All right. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you, Ruvimbo, for joining Celestial Citizen Podcast and talking about your experiences working in the field of space law and policy, as well as, of course, also spreading the word about the upcoming African Space Generation Workshop in Accra, Ghana. That's on February 26th through the 25th through the 26th. And I strongly encourage all listeners to donate to this great event by visiting the event's GoFundMe page. So thank you again, Ruvimbo. It was great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really encouraging conversation to have. Three, two, one. We have liftoff. A ridiculous little trip, my supersonic ship. Set your disposal if you feel so inclined. All right. And to all you listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Celestial Citizen Podcast. This episode would not be possible without the terrific work of this show's editor, Victor Figueroa. Thank you, Victor. Also, a very special thank you to Graham Clark, who created the amazing intro and outro music for this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Celestial Citizen, and I hope you are, then check out celestialcitizen.com. You can also follow along on Twitter at Celestial Citizen and Instagram at The Celestial Citizen. And be sure to sign up for the Celestial Citizen newsletter on Substack. You can find the link to this on our website. A major component of Celestial Citizen is feedback and public participation. We want to hear what you have to say, so please let us know what you think about humanity's future in space and what it should look like. Please share your voice and your unique perspective on social media, or if you prefer, all of the Celestial Citizen articles can also be found on Medium, so drop a comment and join the conversation. If you love today's podcast, please have your friends and family subscribe on whatever device or platform you listen to podcasts on and leave a stellar, see what I did there, review so others can get hooked as well. That's all for now, Celestial Citizens. I'll be back next week for another episode. In the meantime, don't be afraid to take up space.